You're listening to Startup and Onward, an ongoing conversation with product sales and marketing leaders working to align teams and supercharge growth. Join us as we give you an insider's look into the real-world experience of leaders seeking the growth stage by empowering their teams to navigate the Bermuda Triangle of product, marketing, and sales. I'm your host, Josh Taylor. And we need your trust as an end user employee to tell us what you really need. So when you provide somebody with something that's personal, relevant, accessible, not too expensive, easy to understand and easy to use, you pretty much found the, the, the right ingredient. Hey everybody, we have a great show for you today. We sat down with Chris Lebrecht, Chief Growth Officer at Patient. Chris has an extensive background in employee benefits. He talks a lot about what is required in the culture to propel an organization forward and how can sales work with the other departments inside of the company and not just sales broadly within an organization because many companies have multiple divisions that have their own sales function. That how do those departments that often operate like silos start to work together? And we have a very engaging conversation that probably will lead to other episodes, but hope you enjoy. Chris Lebrecht, good to see you. Good, good to see you, Josh. Always fun conversations, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited to dive in with you. As a way of getting started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you are now, and specifically about your current role? Sure. Uh, happy to. So I started way back when, uh, early 90s, and at the risk of dating myself, which, <laughs> you know, it's just, it just is what it is. If we were on video, you'd know how old I was just by looking at me. So we'll, we'll kind of bypass that as, um, you know, just a function of my own ego. Um, 90-92, kind of between there, I, I fell in with uh, MetLife in individual financial planning and, and lasted about 18 months there. Great company, just wasn't where I wanted to be. I wanted to be um, more surrounding commercial risk um, and, and dealing with business owners. So I transferred from there to a small family-run agency that was just growing their benefits department, it was predominantly property and casualty. And I spent 18 years there. Um, you know, ended up being the number two person in the company and a stockholder and shareholder, um, uh, running bene- the benefits and the PNC from a management standpoint in many ways with the help of my partner. Um, and then my partner, who was 17 years my senior, decided we kind of decided together. It was like kind of he, he had one foot in Vero Beach, Florida, and one foot in New Jersey. And this six months in one day in Vero Beach was an indicator for me. And so, so we had a the conversation. Writing was on the wall. Yeah, it was for sure. You know, uh, customers were like, "Hey, how's Frank doing? How's his handicap?" You know, it was like <laughs> it, it, all good stuff. So, I mean, he was great. He was very good to me and gave me an opportunity um, to do a lot of things uh, without a whole lot of oversight, which was fantastic and helped me develop uh, as a professional. So, we ended up selling to a friendly competitor, um, only to have that unwound very quickly due to some some challenges that that competitor was having, and we ended up getting bought separately as two different organizations, July 1st of 2010 by Insurance Office of America, Iowa. Um, and so their philosophy was, hey, you, you got to fall on one side of the fence, property and casualty or benefits um, or retirement planning or you know something else. And you have to specialize because the world's become too complex. And, and that was a, I, I think that's a good philosophy ultimately because it is complex. It's hard to be a generalist around risk, risk management um, and insurance in particular. Uh, so I chose a side. I chose the benefit side and, and started to develop our practice in the Northeast, um, you know, from my footprint in New Jersey. And we continued to grow. 2014, I was asked to um, to 
take over as at the time managing partner of the employee benefits uh, group at Iowa, which I readily accepted uh, with my wife's approval and moved to uh, Florida, moved to Orlando, um, Longwood, actually north of Orlando, where the home office is, and began to grow that that division. Um, proud to say we, you know, we, we started, I think, at around uh, nine million in revenue, I think, in 2014. And when I walked out the door uh, last year, we're somewhere cresting close to 40 million. Um, and almost 150 plus people with the best culture inside the organization. That was the thing I was most proud of. Not our EBITDA, not our growth, not our top line revenue, even though that's what keeps the lights on. Ultimately, it was the culture that we had um, and the strong employee engagement. That meant the most to me. Um, And so beta testing things inside that environment with my own team and then experiencing that with the rest of the enterprises. I was on their board of directors and part of the executive leadership team, um, you know, it, it felt right to me because we were seeing results um, improve constantly in our net promoter scores with our clients, um, how our clients felt about us. And it proved the theory that I had always felt, but never really tested, that how our people feel about each other is directly and linearly related to how our clients feel about us. Mm. Um, I think we've all experienced this when you walk into a restaurant and there's a really strong bond between the employees. There's almost a sense of a reverent camaraderie, which is an indicator of trust. You begin to trust them and you begin to interact with them differently. And the food tastes a little better. The delivery is a little smoother. Things that go wrong don't seem like they're as big a deal, right? So it just, it changes the outlook. It's, it changes the complexion. It's a lot like room temperature. When it's on, you don't really even notice it. It just, it just is what it is, right? But when it's wrong, it has an impact, right? I mean, Stanford Research has done studies about um, people's people's uh, output, their their you know their, their work level, their product product, their work product based on temperature reduces temperature in a room by two degrees, and it has an impact. That's a lot like culture. Um, it's yeah. it doesn't change immediately. It's not a it's a dimmer switch, right? You have to kind of work at it and work at it and work at it, get it to improve. Um, so that's been like the undercurrent of my career is is. How do you interact with your people differently, um, not just for the sake of being different, but a difference of, of kind, not degree, to get the results that you want them to get for themselves and ultimately are in tandem with what you're trying to do as an organization? It is by far the harder path to take, um, but certainly by far the more rewarding path. You know, it's it, you can start, I guess, as a leader with a default position that, and these are Daniel Pink's words, so I'm going to be really clear that I'm stealing, uh, and, and I'm the Milton Berle of, of these ideas, right? They're always someone else's that I kind of amalgamate into my own language. Um, nothing's really invented, it's reinvented, right? I mean, I think that's right. there's some truth to that. But Daniel Pink, you know, used to say that, I've heard him say, it's the, the factory default setting is for people to be engaged. You find me a four-year-old who's not engaged, and I'll find you a child who's actually ill, not feeling well, right? Um, it's the default setting. So kind of supporting that, in a way that, you know, the behavior and everything else follows the way it should is really important. Or you can look at it that people are trying to shirk their duties, not do the job they want. They want to get over on you. They're just trying to fly below the radar. Well, that takes you down a very different path, right? I mean, you know, all of a sudden now you're managing and micromanaging and you're asking for swing line staplers and all this stuff. And you're not really getting the results out of the, 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 you're not helping people reveal their best self really is what it comes down to. Because I, can't stand the expression, and this is a Simon Sinek thing. I can't stand the expression where you're trying to wring the most you can out of your people. Yeah. The, you know, you do that with equipment, 
you know, the lawnmower, a weed whacker, you know, a, 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 you know, a metal stamper. That's what you do. You don't do that with people. Good subtle movie reference, by the way. Swing line staple. I, yeah, I'll try to do that more often just to make sure everybody's paying attention. <laughs> what, was, what was it like um, early on at a consulting group in benefits when you're growing? I mean, you started early on. That team that you eventually sold to IOA was kind of still figuring out its way, it sounds like, when it came to the benefits space. What was that like being early on inside of that culture as you're developing it, as you're growing it? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to chuckle, but it's it perfectly timed. I mean, I think the answer to that is there's not there's no beginning and no end to this. You just come alongside of it, right? So early on is okay. Early on, there's a lot of work to do, but that's good work to do, right? So it's almost like you're starting with new construction versus restoration, right? The earlier on you are, if you're starting with a foundation, it's easier to build up than to tear something down and build it up because everybody knows who's done reconstruction is you open up a wall and you go, whoa, the wiring here is not code. You know, we, but, we now have issues we didn't know we had. And, right? and so, to, that, to that new construction um, analogy, though, you still need to have a buyer or a builder or an owner that wants to give you the permission to build from that foundation. Yes. And that is, a, again, um, you and I have talked about kind of how this conversation will unfold. I think that that's a closing point right there, um, which is how you do that as a leader, how you provide an environment for that to happen effectively. Um, it's it's a tough, tough place to be. But cl- clearly, you know, you come alongside these things, right? It's so like that organization existed for, you know, when we sold, I think the company was 87 or 88 years old. So it'd been around a long time, family run business. Um, long, long business. And so I came alongside of it and was charged with growing a specific division, which I did, which ultimately some of the things that were successful, we ported into the rest of the organization. And I repeated that process at Insurance Office of America. You know, I was my responsibility was to turn the culture around in the benefits department and grow that initiative, make that best in class, and then take those best in class practices and try to port them to the rest of the organization, our retirement planning division, our payroll company, our property and casualty bonding, um, human capital management division, all those other areas um, as to what what works. So to answer your question is anybody who embarks on this has to recognize that there's a history that you have to understand. And it's important to understand the deep, rich history. One of the things I love about Tiger Woods is, and has always been, even when he was at the top of his game, most importantly, when he was at the top of his game, is how he respected the history of the folks that came before him and he recognized how he was standing on their shoulders in many ways. Now he certainly carved his own path. There's no doubt about that. But I think that that respecting the history of where you are and how you got there, anybody can Monday morning quarterback anyone else into the ground if they want to, but decisions are often made not in a vacuum. They're made in a, in a continual. So what the fact patterns are, you know, were five years ago, it may be very different today, but you make those decisions, the best decisions you can at that time. It doesn't necessarily make them, you know, great decisions through time, but they're the decisions you can make then. So yeah, how do you improve I think on that? A really- the, the reality is you're just constantly looking at this like it's an evolution and it's it's always changing and you have to stay with your foot on the accelerator. That's a really good point of like when you come into an organization, recognizing that there was a history that preceded you is going to help you take that 
culture to the next level because most people bristle at the new guy, quote unquote, who's coming in, who has all the ideas, it's going to fix all the things or, you know, take us to the new level. But if you're not first listening, if you're not first processing what has happened prior to you, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, um, you don't have the context you need in order to build the influence that you need. That's that's 100% accurate. And I will tell you um, at IOA, I, I had good fortune to report to a gentleman who gave me that latitude to learn what the history was before I started making decisions. Walking into a room and thinking that you understand the room and the interactions. I mean, this is human interaction, which is business, right? Especially in the insurance business where there's, you know, we're not building bridges or digging ditches. There's, there's no, the product is our intellectual capacity and the way we leverage that. So understanding how people interact is crucial to understanding success and failure and what that looks like. Um, I didn't see or hear impatience directed my way for the slowness with which I started to make change, but I felt it. I felt it. I felt it because the company was it was a fast moving company, and I didn't feel like fast moving decisions that early on made sense because there was a lot I didn't know. Um, you know, there's an old expression in New Jersey: you got to know where the bodies are buried, right? <laughs> you know, so you, you kind of want to you you want to you want to watch the interactions and pay attention and see because people tend to profess themselves externally as X, but when you learn them, you understand that they're they are like all, including myself, we're all a little flawed. And so learning that, understanding that to be in a position to help them reveal their best selves takes time and it takes patience. So in, your experience, I, in your experience, Chris, how do you push back against leadership when they're trying to pressure you to speed up those decisions? And you're like, listen, I don't have the, I don't have the foundation yet. Like I really need to have a better sense of where we've been, where we want to be going. What's the challenges preventing us from going there? How do you uh, respectfully push back? Yeah. So I think it all starts in the interview, right? I mean, am I joining a group that's going to allow me to call BS on some of the things that the company might be doing? Are they open to that? Right. And I might be wrong, but are we willing to verbally green line wrestle through that to prove me wrong or prove the, the, the thought? Like, can we get through that process together? Um, so, so once you know you're in that environment, then that's helpful. And it's, you'll feel a lot more confidence in pushing back. And the other part of this is when you push back, you can't push back, you can't assault the person. There can be no vilification in that process. It's, you're talking about processes. You're not talking about people. Personalities set aside, right? Maybe personalities are the problem, but that's a different conversation than the process that we're talking about could possibly be improved and this is why. Um, so I think you have to be, one, you have to be confident enough to push back that you're, your your position is strong enough to warrant some battle, even from your leader. Um, what is a great expression from Jay Hamilton um, with Stealth Underwriters. He says, no good plan survives the first battle with the enemy, right? So you, you kind of have to be willing to fight through it a couple of times, um, but it takes some guts to push back. Um, and in particular, if you're with a leader who has a short um, patience, and wants things done right away. It's the individual item itself. Like, so if it needs to be done right away, I need to understand what's the sense of urgency around that. Um, if it, if it can, if I 
can allow it to unfold over time and understand it better and probably come to a better solution. Does that make sense? So it's it's the willingness to push back, but then it's the willingness of leadership to listen when you do. That's the hard part, yeah, but I think for many folks, and it's oftentimes because when you interview for a job, you want the job, you know, you're, you're, you need the pay, right? So you take it, but then you find yourself in a place where the environment might not be exactly what you're looking for. And I honestly believe from the pandemic to now, we're experiencing a lot of that, right? So there's a, people are asking for things that, um, that people didn't ask for in the past. And they're demanding things that they didn't demand in the past. And that's not that they people didn't want them in the past. Like the millennials have been much maligned about, you know, they want ping pong tables and beanbag chairs. Well, that's not really what they're asking for, even though those things can be fun at certain times. But what they're asking for is a lot of the things that I think I asked for in my younger career, but was kind of smacked in the head and said, put your nose back to the grindstone, keep your mouth shut and do your job. But that's not the way the world is now. And that's not the way it's going to continue to evolve towards. Um, it'll balance. Like it's it's a it's a pendulum. It swings back and forth. I think the some of the positions that were taken, you know, 2020, 2021 by corporations are now being looked at as well, maybe that was too aggressive, right? So it, we feel it coming back. Well, um, that's why I want to I dive in because it seems like, you know, the obviously the pandemic had a major impact in every aspect of how we work. And even the it's almost like a, an aftershock we're feeling like we had the shock of the pandemic. Now we're feeling the aftershock of this yeah. uh, remote work environment that still certain companies are struggling with. But I think traditionally, you and I have always talked about these silos that develop within teams, uh, these misalignments that are inside of the structures. And I think you put it well, you said it's not the people, it's the processes that need to be analyzed yeah. and possibly skewered. When you're coming into an environment, what is it that you're looking for um, that is an indication that there are silos? And what are the silos that you're trying to help break down inside of an organization? So, um, and, and I'll use the, the kind of prototypical insurance agency brokerage firm as, as the example, but I don't think it's different um, in other organizations that might might have similar type structures, right? So I think... A lot of people talk now about your why, and I think that's that's really important because it allows people through different divisions, different groups within the same organization to connect to something that's greater than themselves. I think ultimately that's extraordinarily important. Um, so when I look at an organization, I want to understand what's the objective they're trying to achieve. What does that look like? And how do they convey that to the different stakeholders, leaders in those different quote unquote silos, right? And and then how are they connected with each other? So think about it from an insurance agency. An insurance agency's job is to reduce, transfer, and mitigate commercial risk predominantly, if unless they're dealing all in personalized. But let's just assume we're talking commercial lines, B2B sales, B2B consulting. They're trying to drive down the the risk for that organization in every aspect. And so you think about the prototypical insurance agency, it typically has a, a benefits division, a property and casualty division. It may have a risk management division. It's got a retirement division, a personal lines division, um, and maybe a human capital management division. 
I've used the word division purposely. Division means they're divided, means they're not talking to each other, that they're not structurally connected. And do they cross-sell from one to the other? Yeah, they do. So so great example of this is workers' compensation and employee benefits. They're all around health, occupational health, and just general health. And so are they connected in most agencies? No, they're not. They may be responsible at the at the administrative level of the customer, the HR department, or some other department as determined by the employer to be housed in the same place. But oftentimes that person who's managing the risk of those areas, general health and occupational health for the employer is dealing with two different agencies and two different brokers on that same conversation. How hard does that become for that person to understand the connections between those two? Simply put, the connections between those two can be um, it can be illustrated with the notion that somebody who has two comorbidities, high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, obesity versus less than two comorbidities goes out on a worker's comp injury, someone with two comorbidities or more is out six times longer than the person who's not. So if you're not, if you're reducing comorbidities inside that employer group, but you're not having the conversation about the impact on prospective underwriting and workers' compensation, you've missed a connection. Now, inside most agencies, the person who's responsible for PNC, the practice leader, and the practice leader who's responsible for benefits aren't necessarily connected to each other and creating structure to accelerate the conversation between the two on behalf of the end user, administrative client, or HR person. They're not having that conversation. It, it, it occurs randomly and by happenstance to two folks having a conversation at the water cooler about the Buccaneers who just won their sixth straight game. And at the time, Tom Brady, how great he was. And all of a sudden they start talking about something and a customer comes up. They start talking about it. They say, you should talk to them about the workers' compensation. I've heard my customer complaining about that. I'm hearing pain. Okay. Well that happens, but is there actually a, a prospective effort inside that organization to connect those two things between the two stakeholders, benefits and property and casualty and workers' compensation. Why, why do you most think, often no? Why do you think that that's the case inside of these agencies? Because I, I agree with you. I don't think it's just insurance. I think yeah. that these divisions happen in a lot of different consulting companies or just yeah. larger companies in general. There's tremendous lateral revenue that's like lost. It's on the yeah. table. Why are these companies missing it? So um, it's a great question, and I, I think I have the answer. I could be wrong, but this is what I've witnessed and seen time and time again. Practice leader of the PNC team and the practice leader of the benefits team have a PNL that they are charged with managing and reporting to the CFO and the ELT, executive leadership team. And so, do they want that? Do they want to take the risk of helping benefits grow by connecting benefits to workers' compensation? when it doesn't affect their income. Yeah, especially not right away. Well, especially in the short term, right? So the incentives are set such that I just need to take care of my corner of the house, my room in the house, which is back left corner. It's where the kitchen is. That's my place. That's where I'm cooking. I'm not going outside of that. I don't really want to go outside of that. Um, it's not because I'm a bad person. It's just, here's how I'm motivated. I'm going to follow that. Financial incentives are like gravity. No matter how strong you think you are, it's eventually going to wear you down and it's going to pull you right to where it wants to pull you. And so until such time as those incentives are changed, where compensation is rewarded for the stakeholders to cross-sell on behalf of their clients 
and in behalf of their client, and they're communicating consistently across those two areas. So think of it this way, Josh, um, the two people at the, at the water cooler, right? They have this conversation. They just happen to talk about the same client. But one gentleman calls the client and says, hey, now I've been handling your employee benefits for five years now. We've been watching through our wellness program, outcomes-based. We're seeing the comorbidities drop, but I don't think you're having that conversation with your workers' compensation underwriter because that's handled by another agency and we don't communicate with them. We don't share data and that's hurting you as a client. I'd like to introduce you to my workers' comp partner who can have that conversation with your underwriters and prospectively reduce your cost overall and manage the plan more effectively when we work together. That's one way to introduce a referral, right? And that's that is a um, that's a strategy. That's not a sale. The other sale is, hey, I want you to meet Tom. He, he handles workers' comp. He does a great job for his other clients who speak really highly of him. I play golf with him every once in a while. We should all go out and play golf, and maybe you can do business with him. And the client says, Chris, yeah, I know you. You've always steered me in the right direction. I'll have that conversation. The second conversation and the first conversation are vastly, vastly different. Yeah. One is based on relation. The other is based on outcomes. And so which one is the client, particularly the one I don't play golf with, going to respond to? Mm-hmm. Every client is going to respond to the first question, right? But there's no, typically inside that agency there, in most agencies, there's no infrastructure to support that. There isn't backend data sharing. There isn't, you know, so everybody's doing pretty well in their silos and they're managing and they're reporting and they're growing and they're, you know, watching their EBITDA. But are they really serving the end user the way they could? I think that there's another fold here to reveal that will have, um, a broader and greater impact inside the the notion of reducing, transferring, and mitigating commercial risk. Uh, when you start to take all of these assets and recognize that they are connected, they're quilted together. You know, I think it was John Muir who used to say, the naturalist used to say, tug on one part of nature, all of nature moves to varying degrees. Well, so if I screw up benefits and health, it has an impact throughout the rest of that employer's business. If 80% of his people are unhealthy, Imagine the work product that they're producing. Imagine the, how their clients feel about them. Imagine, imagine that company succeeding. It's hard to imagine that company succeeding, right? So yeah. understanding the implications of anything you do. And this is, this is where I think you asked a question earlier for the specifics of it, but people need to understand where they reside in the value that it brings to the end user, no matter where they are. If it's Connie in the mailroom or Jeff, who's the president of the organization, they both bring value. If Jeff decides to play golf one day, all day long, and doesn't answer his voicemails and emails, there might be some damage. If Connie doesn't open the mail for a couple of days in a row or just throws the mail in the garbage, checks and bills, that's a bad thing. That has a, a massive impact. Understanding the impact it has to the end user, I think, is really crucial for every single person in the organization, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it, I think it makes more than just sense. I think it actually points the way towards how a leader, regardless of whether they they currently have a role as a leader or they just see themselves as a leader, even if they're in a company that is not using data in the way that you said, they are not cross-pollinating ideas in order to grow lateral revenue, they are keeping it siloed. I think that there's a huge opportunity for those people, based on what you just said, if they can get a grasp of how the company makes money and they know the vision for where the company should be heading, then they can offer solutions that are way more pragmatic because they can say, look at the data. 
I know leaders, you haven't seen this data, but I went and did the work with my colleague in order to pull together this report that shows how these trends do overlap and how one does impact the other and what the bottom line of our agency could look like if we actually developed a strategy to do X, Y, Z. We already have this test. What do you think? Like if you take those pragmatic steps, it's at least a start, a proactive start to helping to turn the culture around. And if you try to do those things and you don't see the culture turning around, at least you know where you lie. <laughs> you know whether the culture is actually going to move or not. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So there's two layers to that, the way I view it. You have the siloed leader, right? First has to get his or her team, you know, understanding the implications of what they do to the end user, right? It's, it is, to your point, it's important to know that it helps the company make money but people are not coin operated, right? They're only gonna do something so long for those purposes. And there's studies, Dan Coyle's done a ton of different studies with you know, fourth graders to show that you, know, you can incentivize them to do something, but you know, the second, third time they have to do it for the incentive, it becomes work and they don't wanna do it anymore, right? So connect it to the outcome of something greater than yourself and the money will flow behind that. I think what we've done in, in business, in many ways, MBAs teach this, First and foremost is you know you, you got to take care of the shareholder first. Well, that's actually not what you should be doing. You take care of the client first. The shareholder gets taken care of. If you're managing everything behind that, right? My father used to say a long time ago: after you hit a golf ball, leaning to the right to keep it from going into the woods on the left is not going to help you, right? It's everything you did before <laughs> contact with the ball. Re recognize that it's the thing. You know, the, the finance is going to follow your your the way you've set your organization up. So. If I'm the leader of the benefits division, I have to make sure that all my folks understand the implications of what they're doing to the end user, for the end user, more importantly, right? Mm. The second layer is how do I get them to understand the implications of what they're doing to the workers' comp team, to the property and casualty team, to the retirement planning team, to the human capital management team? Where do they reside in that ecosystem and what's the importance there? Because that takes their view from you know, 5,000 feet of what's happening in benefits to 50,000 feet of what's happening from a commercial risk standpoint and the implications we're having on a, on a client. When I retired from, retired, when I resigned from Insurance Office of America in December, I asked one of my clients to go out to lunch with me. Um, he used to, he ran a very large car dealership. Um, he was the operations lead and pretty much the guy who ran the company. And the reason I asked him out was because I felt somewhat responsible for the success that they had based on the small part I played. And I wanted to share how much that meant to me that he was willing and his company was willing to allow me to have that, that moment, you know, over, over the, the previous seven or eight years. And that meant a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to the rest of the team. When you see your clients succeed, when you hear your clients succeed, it gives everybody on your team the warm and fuzzies. It does. And so that's something bigger than themselves. We've helped this company succeed and they have done well. Like, I don't know, one of my favorite head coaches of all times, Bill Parcells, when you look at the tree that that man had and the other people that succeeded who went out on their own and he supported this. When they left, he supported He might've been disappointed initially, but he supported it. And he's created like this tree of head coaches in the NFL that's just astonishing, right? And he wasn't, like his management style was not my management style by any means. A lot tougher, a lot more colorful in his language. When you talk about 
really focusing on the end user value. And, and you're yeah. in this space of benefits, right? That's been your career is in what most people would refer to as a very complex industry. It's a very complex B2B sale. It's a very complex yes. user environment because you often don't have one thing. It's like a treasure trove of things. It's a junk drawer. Uh, it seems like most employee benefit plans are. How, how do you work at turning in a benefit plan like that that actually does deliver user value at the end of the day, something that the users actually care about and know how to use? It's a, it's a great question. And it's, there's no easy answer to that, right? It's a, it's a full-on commitment to uh, number one, and understanding what's relevant to the employee end user patient. What do they value and what do they need? People buy, I learned this from a good friend of mine who learned it from someone else, Randy Federo. They, they buy for three reasons. They buy because uh, they're in trouble. They buy because they see trouble coming, or they buy because they have an opportunity to be a hero. When you start with that framework, you know everybody in the insurance business is always trying to find pain. They want to hear pain so they have something they can fix, and that gives them an opportunity to talk to the client. Most clients don't really realize what good even looks like. They don't realize even when they are in pain, and sometimes they are, more often around employee benefits because of the dynamic nature of it, there's pain somewhere. Right now, everybody, and for the last 20 years, everybody's been complaining about cost. Now it's transparency. It's the cost and outcome. How do I measure that as an end user? Where do I go for an MRI that I'm going to get the greatest value for a fair price? Um, I think it really requires committing yourself to that client to understand, to my earlier point, their history. How did they get to where they are? Where are they in their benefits journey? Where do they need to go next? And what are the resources that are best going to help them get there? So you're going to prioritize in your analysis, what are the hottest fires that need to be put out first? What are the things that are most broken that you have to address? And what capacity financially, you know, time commitment, everything else do you have bandwidth to execute on that? And as you communicate through HR or the responsible party of that employer as a consultant, and further to the end user, you start to create this connectivity of the end user told us this, and we were able to do this. If we're not able to do something, we communicate back to the end user, we heard you. This is why we can't do this, but it's on our radar and we're going to work to, if you have a better idea, we want to hear it. It's, it's this open loop of, of vulnerability and communication to recognize that, hey, we don't have all the answers, but we need your help in figuring it out. And we need your trust as an end user employee to tell us what you really need. So when you provide somebody with something that's personal, relevant, accessible, not too expensive, easy to understand and easy to use, you pretty much found the, the, the right ingredient, right? You've hit the nail on the head. And when you do that for one, then it's easier to duplicate and do it for many others, right? It's the, I think you talked about it, right? 10X is easier than 2X, yeah. right? So there's a whole book written about that, right? So it's it's like, now you can now you can scale because others are gonna go, yeah, I had that same problem and this is the solution. And then you get some followership in the, in the membership and you get some, you gain some credibility. So when you say things, they listen a little more closely. Around the benefits world, there's been a lot of, um, there's been no shortage of lack of credibility. And so a lot of, there's a lot of solutions out there that don't necessarily deliver on what their promise is. And it takes a lot of work to vet through those, to vet through the ones that you need to get a client to engage. And a broker's job is not easy because again, this is a job that never finishes. It never really starts and it never finishes. You just join a client, 
where they are, you find out where they are, what they need next, and you start to build that over time. Um, yeah, so I really feel like you're constantly vetting all these different partners that you have, you have to pull together to bring to the table. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and look, there's this is one thing that I've learned with patient um, as I'm here. One is to be more patient, but number two is to look at that um, and recognize that we're only going to have so much of, of a certain slice of attention span from the administrator of the plan itself, the HR director, CFO, whoever's in control of that, and then the end user, right? There's limited bandwidth in the communication. Um, and you have to make, you, you got to make hay while the sun shines in that regard. Like, so if they tell us that, you know, emergency room use is a problem, then we've, we've got to come up with a solution and a communication platform that gets folks to understand that, right? The, the end user employee doesn't necessarily think in terms of if they use the emergency room for non-emergent purposes, that that's going to come back to them dressed up in a premium rate increase later on down the road. But when you tell them that and you say, hey, we're all in this together, you know, the performance of our group denotes the cost we're all going to pay next year and the year after and the year after. When you get them to buy into that with constant communication and education, uh, you know, it, it you get a followership that is listening um, to the solutions you're offering. And for a consultant broker, there's that's very rewarding because at least you've now got um, the credibility with that group to help lead them in, in a population health management effort, which ultimately, as we've talked about, right, that's connected to the performance of the company that you're working for. So when I sat down with the gentleman who I'd worked with for seven years who ran the auto dealership, that was part of my conversation. It was like, you know, in the small part that I had a degree of success, I felt like I was part of your team. And that meant a lot to me, professionally speaking, more than anything I've been paid. That yeah, meant more to me. I don't know if you're saying this, but this is how I'm interpreting what you're saying. That when you're in a sales role and that job is to consult with the end client, you need to learn how to speak multiple languages. Most sales teams are trying to teach you to speak the language of sales as though it's like one magic language to rule them all. <laughs> when what I'm hearing you say is no, you have to understand exactly the opportunity that you're going after and what is their unique struggle at that moment in time, and then speak that particular language, whether that's, hey, I'm struggling with this particular part of claims that are higher than they should be. And that's ultimately driving our cost, I need to now translate into their language why what we're providing is actually going to help them. Um, great point. And by the way, thank you for throwing a new movie reference right back at me. So now I've got to launch it. <laughs> <to rule them. laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So um, I think of sales as communication, right? Um, and uh, communication is a, it's a, a passion of mine. Um, great expression. I think it was Holmes who said, I don't know what he said, um, the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it actually took place. And, you know, you, you said something and it was misinterpreted or, you know, not interpreted at all or not heard at all. I mean, there's part of that. Salesmanship is communication. Consulting is leadership um, to best practices. It's not forcing somebody in. And there is no magic language. That's really what it comes down to. It's humans talking to humans. People don't buy based on spreadsheets. They don't buy based on analyses. They don't buy based on hypotheses or thesis for sure. They buy because of how they feel. They buy because they've established a degree of trust with the seller 
that has provided them the environment to say yes. Outside of that, no matter how good your mathematics are, no matter how good your, your algorithms are and your spreadsheets and your, your, your building of your case, if you're not trusted, there is a part of that person that's going to put up a wall and they're not buying. It's not going to happen. Their amygdala is an overdrive looking for, for danger, right? So there's two parts to this, right? There, you know, there's kind of the sleazy car salesman. And I hate to say car salesman because insurance people could be, the, but you know, you could say sleazy news reporters these days. Like there's no shortage of bad actors in any industry, right? Then there's good actors in every single industry as well. And there's probably folks in between, which is where most of the world resides. So to think of this as binary, I think is unfair. The best consultant salespeople out there are the ones who really know effectively how to determine where a client is, to evaluate their history and where they are today, and then to connect them, this is the sales part, to what the future could look like. You have to be able to tell a story that's inspirational and aspirational. Because an aspiration is really important in benefits. It's also important in any dynamic environment that is difficult to predict outcomes on. You know, they call them wicked environments versus, you know, structured environments. Chess is a structured environment. There's a set of rules. The game starts, it ends at a certain point. You have to operate baseballs the same way. Weather prediction, voter sentiment, population health management, wicked environments. Stuff happens that you're completely unpredictable that you didn't see coming. And so, you know, as, as a salesperson slash consultant who's been in the business a long time, particularly in benefits in a dynamic environment around healthcare, you're managing to sort of a squishy and less engineered environment of, hey, this is what we see coming. This is what my experience has told me. This is what my gut's telling me. I think we need to put this resource in front of your people for the next renewal so that they are prepared for this. They've told us that they have X, Y, and Z problem. This supports that as well. And so let's initiate this moving forward for the next renewal so that we're, we're changing the trajectory of where your, your loss history or your plan could go and create a better environment going forward. And this could create X. To say it will, you listen to anybody who speaks in absolutes, you know you're in trouble, especially in a dynamic environment. There are no absolutes. There's no guarantees. To the degree that you can impact the outcomes, even in a marginal way, but across a, a multitude of different areas, you can, you can better control the overall outcome. It's, you know, the aggregation of marginal gains. I forget the yeah. British gentleman who talked about this. It's, you know, if I can improve slightly the understanding of how to use the benefits plan, if I can improve slightly uh, the utilization of the network, if I can improve slightly the disease management adherence protocols that my group needs, if I can improve slightly the RX adherence protocols, if I can improve slightly the plan migration from one plan to another in a responsible way. Well, the aggregation of all those improvements is a pretty substantial thing. We talk to any CFO, a three or 4% adjustment year over year, that's a big differentiator between you and your competition for overall cost and just you know outcomes and results. So, so you're, you're the point is language. sales and consulting are, are they're, they're inextricably married together. And sometimes you, used to, you need to use sales and communication to inspire someone and, and aspire them towards taking a certain path to get the result. So when you're talking about language and really finding what is the problem, what is the need at the client side, I think of like sales being the tip of the spear and 
at IOA, you had the producer side and then you had the account managers who were working with those clients once they come into the fold. I'm assuming that the producers yeah. were still involved in some way or another. Now you're at patient and there is a legitimate product team and you have a sales team. What is in your experience the importance of getting those internal teams, the ones that are in the four walls and Obviously, the account managers back at IOA weren't always in the four walls. They were also meeting with clients from time to time. Yeah. How do you get those people that are in the day-to-day operations to see the same things that the sales team is seeing when they're kind of the tip of the spear and they're having some of those upfront conversations? Because sometimes the translation of the type of things you talk about in a sales meeting, they don't work their way back into the four walls. Yeah, that's a... A really fair point. And I think more often than not, in a lot of organizations, that's exactly the way it is. Um, the, the difference of patient that I've recognized in the 173 days that I've been here today, but who's counting, um, is, is that there's this open sense of communication and transparency that I've never seen in an organization before. Um, it's, it's something that's actually foreign to me and took me a bit to get comfortable with. So like our, our weekly sales calls has marketing and product on those sales calls. Love so it. we're, and that, you know, when you have a fast paced organization that has a, um, a product that in many ways, folks haven't really experienced all of its implications, right? Like patient is a visa card interest-free, no fees that we provide to an employee sponsored by an employer so the employee can afford their out-of-pocket costs for healthcare, you know, medical, dental, Rx, even veterinary expenses. And yeah, sorry for the quick commercial, but it's important to understand that. But there are implications of this product that go well beyond affordability and access. Um, it, it, it has impact on turnover in some of these other areas. It's really important to understand that. Um, Absolutely. And, and if your product team is in your weekly sales call, that's huge yeah. because they can actually hear the dialogue that you're having about yes. trade-offs and products and problems that aren't being solved. And that is huge. Yes. Yes. And, and the patient's done a really good job with super smart front-end and back-end engineers who can make a lot of these adjustments, even though they're small adjustments, right? It's Toyota became the number one auto manufacturer on a little thing called Kaizen, which is improvements across the line done by everybody. Uh, little improvements that make have an aggregate impact. That's exactly why they're there. The other reason that they're there, Josh, candidly, is the client journey has to be consistent, right? I mean, how many times have you bought a product that you weren't sure how it would work, right? You weren't entirely sure. Marketing said it would do this, right? And solve all your problems. Sales delivered and said, yeah, yeah, it'll do that. It'll do that and it'll do this and, and, and some other things. And this is how we're going to sell it to you. And this is how we're going to place it. Service comes in and says, well, yeah, it kind of works like that, but it doesn't sort of work like that. You have this overwhelming black cloud of buyer's remorse that comes over top of you. If it's not consistent throughout because we're not communicating on that, and as a team, we're not in real time, weekly or even more often than that, having these conversations. And in a company that has you know, under 100 employees, it's, it's easier to do, right? The, the question is when we have 1,000 or 5,000 employees, what's that gonna look like? How are That's we why going it's so to- critical, Why it's so critical to know the why, right? Because it's uh, you describe those three teams, they are not aligned on their reason for being. 
That's correct. That is absolutely correct. So what's true north? And is everybody focused on that? And is everybody willing to sacrifice some of their own to get to true north? That's where it becomes challenging in the silos. Stakeholders don't want to take a step back for the greater good oftentimes because they are personally incentivized to, to do something other than that, right? So it's getting, the why is really important that people aren't focused on the entirely focused on their own world. They're focused on this thing that's bigger than themselves that they're trying to achieve. And when the culture fits that, those people who are selfish tend to self-select out. They feel this, they feel this healthy pressure to make a decision not to be there anymore. And I've seen that happen before. Um, and honestly, it's wonderful when it happens because that person is not feeling great. A company is not feeling great about that person. The group around them doesn't like you can recognize this. That's why I don't call business family. I call it tribe. Tribes, people yeah. join, they join and leave tribes all the time, right? Based on their needs and the needs of the tribe. 100%. Family, you can't fire family. That's, that's well, not how it works. That's true. But I think back to your, how do we maintain this momentum as we grow to a thousand? That's where, you know, an effective management strategy around Dunbar's number and realizing that the tribe is really that limited number, right? You can't, you have to have units of tribes, if you will, um, to move forward. Chris, I feel like we could probably talk all day on this stuff, but we got to bring it to a close here. But in closing, um, there are a lot of leaders that are in sales, product, marketing that are listening to this podcast. And if you were to give a piece of advice to any of them, whether they are an aspiring leader, whether they currently are in a leadership role of something that they should either start doing or stop doing in order to become more effective, not just in their own career, but in leading other people, what what would be that piece of advice that you give? Um, that's a that's a that's sort of the the holy grail of questions, right? I mean, I, I don't think it comes down to any one thing. But what I have personally experienced is, um, particularly with folks that report to me directly, um, I find myself with a mantra of saying, let go, let go more, let go more often, let go publicly, let go. Um, Stop trying to control outcomes, control behavior, let go. Um, Trust that you spent the time in the interview process that you spent the time pouring into that person, that they can do way better work um, if you give them that space and and trust um, than you ever imagined. And when you do that really well, and it's it can be, I don't want to say fleeting, but it can come and go, um, the, the moments, but you'll see them start to stack. Um, really good time trialists in cycling or, or, you know, athlete triathletes, the way they train to improve their times in cycling is they'll work, they'll go hard for five minutes and then rest for 10 hard for five minutes. And then the next time it'll be hard for six minutes, rest for nine until such times they go hard the entire time. Right. So it's, you trust a little bit, you see how that works. Then you trust again with that person a little bit, you see, and then at some point you're pretty much trusting them to run it themselves without your touch or, you know, and they're going to ask for guidelines, right? They don't want to be untethered at the same time, but they don't want to be micromanaged. So there is this natural balance that comes when you let go to a certain point. 
You got to let your child go out and skin their knee or they don't learn what it's like to fall and get up and do it again, right? You, you've got to create this environment where there is a sense of safety, psychological safety to go make a mistake. If people don't feel psychologically safe, the work is 10 times more difficult for them to achieve. And I mean, even now in, in my career, where I am now, and where I was before, I still experience moments of concern, moments of not dread, but fear of if I make this decision, what are the ramifications of that? Right. Um, I was given a very safe environment by my direct report, by the person I reported to directly, which is in large part why I was successful at all. Had I not had that, had I had Lumberg standing over my shoulder with the suspenders on and his cup of coffee, I don't know how I would have felt. Right? I don't know how he would have reacted. So let go. Trust more uh, that you've done the hard work of providing an environment that people can reveal their best self and they will do so. They will reward you way more than you probably even deserve. Uh, but letting go is in the function of not paying attention. Letting go is allowing folks to blossom the way they should, uh, professionally speaking. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it requires no, it's, trust and patience. Um, you know, that's, that's not that simple. So it's, it's not easy, but that's really well said. Uh, what are you listening to reading right now that, uh, you can share with us? So <laughs> about probably 12, 13, 14 years ago, I became a bit of a voracious reader. I'm constantly reading and I'm actually rereading three books, uh, right now. Uh, that I read in the past. Um, the, the first one, and it's it's always a go-to, this is more like a manual than anything else. Uh, Dan Coyle's book called Culture Code. Uh, it's an absolute favorite of mine. If you're not a big reader, I'm, I'm sure they have it, um, that you can listen to it. But he's done some TED Talks. He's done a number of different talks around culture. And what what are the ingredients of that? What are the social cues to find? It's really, really good. When by Daniel Pink. Um, and Pink is an absolute favorite of mine. Um, you know, it, it's sort of the, the timing, pace, and cadence of things. That is, I think, really valuable, particularly in sales. Sales is like comedy. It's all about timing. If you're not watching comedians in cars having coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, watch it. If you're in sales, watch it. Understand the sense of timing and the ability to read an audience. There's no better storyteller than a stand-up comedian who's standing in a room that's dark and can't see the faces, but they can hear the laughter and, and read the body language. They're, they are... Uh, Jedis, they are Jedi masters when it comes to, to that. And then Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter, which is a favorite of mine. It just reminds me to not be such a, a wimp when I'm upset that the room temperature is X or it's too humid out or, boy, I'm, I'm starving. I'm not starving. I've starved my entire life other than during wrestling when I was cutting weight. And that was voluntarily. Second, second recommendation for Comfort Crisis uh, on this series, actually. So, yeah, I love yeah, it's, it's it outstanding. And you can watch, if you're a fan of Joe Rogan, some people are, some people aren't. Um, I like the long-form um, podcast, so this this could go three hours. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> um, but we'd probably have to be in the same room having some bourbon or something to make it even fun. Um, That's true. But it, he, he's, he was on with Joe Rogan. Michael Easter was on, and they, they were talking about um, this one particular gentleman, and it's about what the book is about. This this guy who's a hunter up in Alaska. Um it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of cool. And, and he was a writer for Outdoor Magazine. I think it was Outdoor Magazine. And um, it, it's well-written, but it, it's really just about, you know, don't ignore a million years of evolution. And I think that this is really the thing when you talk about sales and you talk about consulting and you talk about interactions, healthcare, whatever it is, we got a million years of evolution at, at play for us. Let's not ignore that just because we live in a technologically advanced world. Our reactions are still 
you know, a million years of evolution, right? I, I forget the gentleman who said, um, he said, we have, oh, I can't remember the expression, it's driving me crazy, something along the lines of we have paleolithic emotions, we have medieval um, uh, processes, and we have godlike technology. I, I'm, I'm, I'm blowing this. That's not exactly yeah, no. how it's said. But the point is, right, you know, you got to recognize all of that. It's dangerous when you have godlike technology and the way you, you think is, is based off million years of evolution to capitalize on that. It makes sense. People still want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They still want to have a sense of future belonging. They want to be part of something that um, that others are part of, and they want to be able to share in that, and they want to feel psychological safety. How do you provide that environment as a leader to get the greatest outcomes for your organization and each individual in your organization? Because those things are not mutually exclusive by any means. There's a way to marry them together. And good leaders can do that. Um, and there's a number of folks that have written plenty of books on that. But power, the power of Google is I can look this up. So it looks like it's Edward Wilson. The real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. That's it. E.O. Wilson, the ant guy. Yeah, he's a he's an entomologist, but a brilliant yeah. man. There's great, I think it's on Netflix or on Amazon. It's a great um, documentary about him. If you're not interested in insects, it'll probably bore the the you know, pull your pants off. <laughs> But it's worth listening to for that line alone. Uh, something that I took and, and um, recognized to try to try to hold dear, uh, you good know, in, in my, my personal interactions. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, Chris. Thanks for the time, man. This is an awesome conversation, and looking forward to continuing it because there's so much more that we haven't unpacked about. You know, how do you how do you lead teams? How do you build a successful internal culture? How do you release that culture? All kinds of stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, happy to do it. Um, this is fun. This is a passion project for mine. So it runs like the third rail in, in what I do every day, but it also amplifies the results of what I do every day. Because I, I try to be good at this, recognizing full well, I'm, I'm not at 100% on any given day. On my good days, I'm somewhere you know below that. And But it still feels right. It feels like a worthy chase. Um, and I, you know, it, it, it fulfills me and I think it fulfills others. So, you know, I'll, I'll, stop. I'll keep doing it until someone tells me it's the wrong thing to do. It proves it to me. It's a good journey. Yeah, for sure, Josh. Thank you. It's, it's always fun, fun chatting with you, fun talking to you. Look forward to the next time we do this. Absolutely. All right. Chat soon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. This podcast is brought to you by Onward Insights. Onward empowers teams to uncover hidden bandwidth, deepen customer retention, improve user engagement, and drive conversations that lead to new revenue. Learn more at onwardinsights.com.